All right. Uh, now that I'm a little bit more composed, uh, take out your Bibles, turn to the book of Mark uh, as we continue our series walking through the gospel of Mark, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Uh, and we are to chapter 10. So we are in chapter 10, starting in verse 1, and we'll go through verse 12 this morning. Um, and this is a, just as last week, a very weighty text. Uh, it's one of those things where, you know, we see Jesus, and Jesus, as we've been talking about through the book of Mark, has, has come. He's revealing himself to be the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah, the one that we desperately need, the one that we hope for, the one that we're seeking, whether we're seeking in him or the things that he has created that only point to him. Every single one of us in life are pursuing purpose and meaning and joy and satisfaction, and he alone is the one that we seek. And he actually reveals himself in humanity. He comes to live and to, to tell us who he is, to reveal through his power and speaking with authority that he is the God who saves, that he is the one who restores, that he's the one that redeems, that all is bro- that is broken will be made new and that in him and his work for us, we might have salvation that we might be brought back into community with him, that we have stepped away from him in our sin and rebellion, seeking to build our own kingdoms and to be our own saviors. But he has made a way for us to be restored back into what we were created to be and to know and to understand and to walk in. And this is the true freedom of life. Not that we would be a people who do not have what we were created to have and and seek, as we have said in previous weeks, everything that we long for in the things of the world, in every relationship that we have, ultimately just using people and things to, to fill us up and to give us some sort of satisfaction. But Jesus is the only one who comes and says, it's not about what you do, but what I do for you. It's not about what you have or what you've accomplished or your religiosity or, or, or what you've done or what you haven't done. The, the religious person and the irreligious person, they both need me because in me alone do you find what you are created to have. It is life in him and him alone. And then because in him you were created to give him glory and you were created to know who you were and then knowing who you were, you would know what to do and you know how to relate to his creation. And so in him and him alone, through his grace, by his work for you, he is alone, the God who allows you to walk in freedom to no longer be enslaved to needing and wanting and fearing losing and having anxiety about not gaining, but to actually be able to live out the identity you were created to have, to walk in freedom, in obedience and service to him and his glory. This alone is freedom. He alone is the one who gives it. And it's by his grace that we are able to receive it. And so Jesus comes and he's proclaiming this And he's revealing this, but he is also going to have to go and pay for the penalty of our sin for us to be able to have salvation in him. He comes and lives for us, and then he pays the penalty of our sin. The wage of sin is death, we read in scripture. And so he dies on the cross to pay for our sin after living the perfect life and glory to the Father that we did not and could not live. And then he rises from the grave to defeat sin and death. And at this point in his life, he is marching towards the cross 
so that he would die for the penalty of our sin and that he would rise from the grave to defeat all that is defeating us so that we might be made new in him, restored in him, redeemed to know him as our Lord and Savior and how to live and how to walk in the eternity that we were created to have with him. And as he is about to ascend back into heaven, leaving his disciples and followers to reveal the kingdom of God to those who are lost all the way down to us today. There are some cultural things and religious things that there's confusion on. There was confusion in the first century on these things. There's confusion today on these things. And Jesus needs these things to be clear. How does the gospel affect every area of our life? How are we to reveal the kingdom? And and what we talked about last week by surrendering ourselves to him fully. How, How do we, as we see this week, surrender our relationships to him fully as he talks about a very deep topic of marriage? Next week, we see how do we surrender all of our possessions to him for joy and glory, to to use them in freedom, to reveal him and who we are in him. But these are deep topics, especially when we talk about marriage, because when we talk about marriage and and broken relationships and and all of the ways that we see relationships today, with, with this passion and desire to get something out of relationships, that we're only supposed to get in Jesus and reveal through relationships. We see all sorts of brokenness in these relationships we have. In friendships, in marriages, and all of us have faced these things. And, and as we get into the topic of marriage today, I understand that it is a heavy and weighty subject. I know that most of us in here have, have been directly affected by a broken marriage. Maybe some of us have been in a broken marriage. Maybe some of us are divorced. Maybe some of us are remarried. Maybe some of us were left. Maybe some of us haven't, are are, are cohabitating. We haven't taken the step to marry because of the, the depth of just the brokenness that we've experienced in it and we're missing out on what it could actually be and what it's actually meant to reveal. And so I know the weightiness of this. I don't, I don't take that very lightly. I, I was thinking this week, um, when I was 17, I was, I was diagnosed with an autoimmune disease. And uh, for the first four to five years, it, was, it seemed impossible to find a solution uh, to get my life back as I saw it. And it was very frustrating. And it, there was a lot of anger. There was a lot of prayer. There was a lot of tears. And I would go from specialist to specialist to try to figure out a different situation or a different medication to take. Some of those medications didn't help very much at all. Some of them had side effects that were just as bad as some of the things that were already taking place. And it just seemed like one step forward was two steps back. And and finally, I went to a a specialist who recommended a medication that by God's grace began to work. And I began to be able to function in such a way that I do today where you couldn't even tell that this was taking place underneath the surface. But as I reflect on those things and and I see God's goodness through them, one of the reflections that I've had as as I've thought back on those moments, that five or six years of very formidable time in my life of that 17 to about 22 years old, and just thinking through the doctors that, that were seeking to help me, that were that were passionately trying to recommend different things, and I was religiously doing everything that they were recommended and recommending, and they wanted me to be healed. They wanted me to be better, and I wanted so desperately to be better, and we were working together on that. And as I, as I think back, even though many of them were unable to help me, I think back about the weightiness of being in the medical field. 
and I had a new appreciation for doctors. And, and I know we have many people in the medical field in our church across both locations. And I pray for you because I know every decision you make when it comes to someone else has a direct effect on their well-being. And I felt that weight when these decisions were being made for me. And, and finally, just being able to, to be so thankful when a good decision was made that fit for me. And, and, and as, I, as I think about the weightiness of making those types of decisions that have impact on the well-being of people's lives, that is how I think as a pastor opening God's word about a subject like this. There is a weightiness to this topic that affects every single one of us and our well-being. There, there's something that God wants to reveal about the truth that, that carries a lot of weight. And, and, and here's what I want us to know as we get into this. I want to, I want to serve you well. I want to come across humbly. I, I want to encourage you, challenge you, convict maybe where necessary. Uh, but I also want us to understand that, that when we take the truth of Christ, it oftentimes prods us in areas that are a little bit tender in areas that are a little bit sore, to diagnose how healing might come. There, there, there's some medication maybe in God's word that, that we need to receive and we need to meditate on and we need to dwell in and we need to believe and hold to, but, but it, can, it can cause us to be uneasy. And this is certainly the topic that we see here. It, there, there's some required action for healing that may even cause discomfort. But my prayer is that, that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear, our hearts would be open to receive, because I believe that this, for every single one of us in this room, whether you're married or not, whether you've been divorced or not, whether you're struggling in your marriage or not, it is going to be really, really good for us. And, and we're not going to be able to get deep into the weeds this morning. We, we have before, we've gone through Ephesians chapter 5, talking about marriage and really digging deep into it. We've looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and gotten deep into marriage relationships and, and what they look like and what they're for. And so you can look back at those. Um, and this morning, I just want us to look at what God's word has to say. We've also talked about singleness in the past. And so you can go and look that back up. And, and if you are not married because you are choosing not to be married or feel led not to be married, I do want you to know right off the bat as we talk about marriage, it is good for you to understand marriage. It is good for you to see it in the way that it should be seen. It's healthy for you, even if you remain single for the rest of your life. And I do want you to know and hear a pastor say that you do not have to be married if you are a follower of Jesus. It doesn't mean that you will have a better life you know, it always depend on Gina. So. <laughs> Front row, amening. Um, normally it's under her breath, and she says under th other things under her breath too. Um, but if you are not married and you are single, then I want you to know that you do not need to be married to live a fulfilled and joyful life. You do not need to be married to reveal the gospel as we will talk about in marriage today. Jesus was the most fulfilled person to ever live, and he was never married. And so those things you can go back and see, but I just want us to look at this text this morning because when we get to this idea uh, of marriage and, and identity and, and how we're supposed to, as Jesus covers over the next couple of weeks, uh, our possessions in life and the things we pursue and the accomplishments we have, uh, these are certainly questions that we ask constantly in our lives. We're constantly in our culture and our society asking questions like, 
who am I and, and, and what is my identity and how should I identify myself and what would actually fulfill me and what would actually allow me to have purpose and meaning that I, that I know and feel innately that I was created to have. And, and, and in knowing who I am, how does that affect my relationships with everybody else? And the most important one on the planet being marriage, the deepest one on, uh, in humanity being marriage relationships and how does my identity affect that and, and how does my identity affect everything that I have and this is what Jesus is laying out for his disciples and when we come to this topic there's certainly a lot of confusion on this there's a lot of confusion in general about human flourishing and, and what we're created for and what we're supposed to do and, and how do we actually experience joy and a lot of times actually experiencing joy as we see God lay it out in scripture seems so counterproductive but it's so true and good and so as we look at marriage this morning and, and we can relate that to singleness and, and, and how Jesus is telling us that marriage is supposed to look, we are certainly in our culture today, we are going to be looking this morning at a timeless truth in what seems like a truthless time. Uh, there's all sorts of different confusions and controversy. And even though um, it feels today like maybe we're a little bit past because our culture is just changing so rapidly. When you think about marriage, it feels so five years ago, right? Like this was something we were thinking about five years ago and looking at scripture five years ago. But, but what we're discovering and feeling today are the major effects of marital confusion. And the things that we're calling further clarity are actually causing, if you're paying attention, a decline in the health of relationships. We can look at statistic after statistic after statistic of the side effects and the pain that confusion in relationships is causing. When we're just following our own hearts and pursuing our own desires and identifying ourselves and then identifying how that identity should relate to other people and the things of the world, it drives us further and further into confusion, further and further into uh, just disunity and lack of understanding and frustration, and we desperately need truth. And so this will be an issue that we talk about in this text that will, that will absolutely probably challenge each of you in such a way to ask the question, will I be God's follower or will I be his editor? Will I look at his word and say, this is the source of, of truth that is outside of me, that is the building block of all other knowledge and truth that allows freedom and life and, and, and for me to experience everything that I'm created to experience, not only now, today, but for all of eternity in communion with him, giving glory to him and everything, and then having right relationship with all of his creation, that I might be a revealer of life and love and truth rather than a seeker of the things that I can only find in him. We will have to each come to grips with that this morning because when we look at marriage, we're thinking, is marriage a social construct or is there a truth under it that is to be built upon? Does it have a purpose or is it just for our happiness? And if we don't understand this, it's going to continue rocking and robbing our society of a lack of knowing and understanding at the deepest level what is possible in a relationship, the beauty of a marriage relationship. 
And so here's what we see in this text, and I just want us to to look at this so that we can kind of come out of this looking at our culture and understanding of just insecurity in our relationships, because when we believe that freedom is something it isn't, that I can just go and pursue whatever I want and follow my heart and its desires, then we're actually enslaving ourselves to people doing what we need them to, to things fulfilling us the way that we want them to and need them to. We're not free at all. When we just say, I'm free to do whatever I want, it's a false sense of freedom. We're actually enslaving ourselves and loving the very thing that is killing us. Freedom is to live in the way that you were created to live. And that's what I hope to to point out to us this morning so that our relationships don't have to be on pins and needles. That we don't have to hide things from each other to get out of a relationship what we desire to get out of a relationship that we can desire to lay out the truth and understand the truth of of what marriage actually is and be able to begin to walk in that. We talked about William uh, Vanstone's book and and love last week and, and just how we each desire a genuine and true love. But outside of Christ and understanding what genuine true love is as he has laid it out and living in the identity that he has purchase for us and gives to us by his grace and and allowing that to affect everything we are and everything that we do, he points out that even though we want genuine true love more than anything, a sacrificial love, to be fully known and fully understood and fully loved. We talk all the time here about how you can only be truly loved to the extent that you are truly known. You can only truly love to the extent that you know someone. But he points out that we all want this genuine love, but, but without Christ and an understanding of the foundational truth in which to build it upon, then we all end up with this disingenuine love, this, this fake love. There's a little bit of fake love in every love that we have outside of Jesus. Because ultimately, we're all trying to gain something from the one that we love that we can only find in him. And genuine love only comes when we feel completely known, understood. We find ourselves in who we are in God and finding ourselves fully in him. Then we can begin to live that out in every relationship that we have. But if we don't have that, then we'll be seeking, as I said, everything in relationships that we're only created to find in him. And therefore, we will be using other people and we will also have to hide a part of ourselves. We'll never be truly loved because we'll never be truly known. We'll never be able to truly love because we'll never truly know another. We will have to hide because to know everything about another who is trying to get fulfillment out of you would absolutely ruin the relationship because we would begin to discover that what I'm seeking in you, you cannot provide. So he points out that there's this little bit of false love in every relationship, though we are desiring genuine love, and we can only find that in Christ. And if we don't find that at the foundational level in Christ, then listen to this, we will begin to dehumanize other even in our attempt to love them because we're using them. And we will begin to demoralize ourselves because we are seeking life in something that doesn't possess it. So much could be said here about this idea of love and and marriage and and all these different kinds of things. And as I said, we don't have time to dig into them. But this is what Jesus tries to point out when the Pharisees try to trap him with this question of marriage, of relationship. So look with me, chapter 10, starting in verse 1. And he, Jesus, left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. 
And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up in order to test him or to trap him. And they asked, is it lawful for a man to, to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And they're actually just really confused. We read in Matthew chapter 19, the parallel passage, that they're going, Jesus, if, if these things that you're teaching is true, it just might be better for nobody to get married. Like, this just seems impossible. They're understanding the weight and the beauty that comes in the deepest human relationship and what it reveals. And Jesus says to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. He says in Matthew chapter 19, unless she is cheating on him or committing adultery or any kind of sexual sin outside of marriage. And scripture is clear and points out to us that sex is designed for marriage. It reveals something very beautiful. Anything outside of that is sexually immoral. And so Jesus gives that clause because it breaks what it's actually supposed to be revealing, which we'll see in just a moment, the importance there of some of the things that God says in his word. They're not just harsh truths to hold you down and keep you from having fun. They're beautiful things that are created to allow you to walk in freedom as he designed you. All the things that he points out. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So we see here this very difficult word. And, and as soon as we all hear it, I know, just as I said at the very beginning of our time together, we have all been affected by this. And some of us, a wall immediately goes up. And for some of us, we're, we're going to have really hard and firm opinions about these things. And so I just want us to see what Jesus is doing here so that we can begin, begin to see the beauty of marriage. And then hopefully at the end, I'll have a little bit of time to give you some comfort, challenge, maybe encouragement on marriage and relationships and the places that you are in. Um, so look what, what Jesus says. It says that Jesus had just been teaching the disciples and now they're going to another place. And as we said, Jesus was teaching as the crowds gathered around him. Jesus is teaching them the gospel truth. He's telling them who he is. He's telling them who they are in him and who they were created to be. All of the things of the beauty of the gospel that Jesus is the Messiah, that he came to set us free from sin, to die to pay our penalty, to rise from the grave, that in him by his grace, we might place our faith in the reality he's done everything for us to have salvation and life and eternity. And in him alone, we can live and walk in freedom. These are the things that he is teaching. It says they had left Capernaum and they went to a region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Now that's very important. We might just kind of glance right over it, but it's really important for us to understand what that means when the Pharisees bring this question to Jesus. And we'll see that in just a moment. But when they got there, these crowds gather around, and so Jesus is teaching them, and then the religious leaders come up to test him or to trap him. And they ask him this question that has cultural and religious implications. It has governmental implications and popular opinion implications. So they're trying to come at him with this all-encompassing question where no matter what Jesus says, 
If he takes this side, uh, you're wrong. And if you take this side, uh, we gotcha, right? That's what they're trying to do. They're setting this trap, which is typically how they come to Jesus. They'll come to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, can you sum up all of the law? Because there's a popular debate in the first century about the summary of all of the laws of the Old Testament, how we can actually find them. And so they're trying to whittle them down to just a few that if we hold these, maybe we're doing pretty well in all the rest. So they try to trap Jesus with that. And here they come to him and they ask Jesus about marriage and divorce. Ultimately, what they're asking is about marriage and identity and relationships and, and how do we actually determine what is fulfilling when it comes to all of life and relationships and our possessions and the things that we have. Because they're coming from the angle of um, marriage is just another possession to make me happy. And, and when, when I'm unhappy with that marriage, are we able just to kind of go and find something that makes me happy? Or, or Jesus, what would you say about it? And so that's the surface level of the question, but Jesus is actually gonna go much, much deeper because he understands they're asking identity questions. They're asking about the, the, the point and purpose of relationships. And so Jesus is going to go far, far deeper than what they actually ask. But they're trying to trap him. And so Jesus says to the question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And the first answer that Jesus gives, it, it really shows us. Jesus answers this in layers, uh, as he often does. And so when someone comes to Jesus, and I'll just say this, by the way, as a side note, not a good idea to debate God, okay? Um, he wins. Um, it's better for us, even when we have to struggle, even when it is hard, even when we have to wrestle with his truth. It's better for us to take his truth, internalize his truth, meditate on his truth, and, and bend ourselves to what he says is true, rather than debate him. He is truth. He is love. He is justice. Everything you're looking for doesn't include him. It is him. And so we look to his word as the foundational truth for all other knowledge and the foundation for which we build all other things and, and begin to understand who we actually are and what we're created to do. But they're coming to him trying to trap him and, and they're going, hey, we're going to get you from both sides. And what he does with his first answer is he pulls them in to their argument and he's going to close all their doors behind them. And then he's going to drop a bomb. Okay, and this is how Jesus typically works with the Pharisees. And they're just going to kind of disappear into the night. And they're like, oops, he got us again, right? Um, and this is what happens when they come to Jesus. But he answers in layers. And the first thing that he says to this question is, what did Moses command you? And what he's showing us with this is he's showing the Pharisees and us, he knows exactly what they're trying to do. He understands the argument of the first century. He knows where it comes from. He knows the debate that is taking place. This was a widely known debate between rabbis and there was another cultural opinion as well. And there was a popular opinion in the first century in this area. And, and so they know, these religious leaders, that this is a debate that's, that's hot right now. This is what is marriage and what is identity and how do we relate to one another? This is a hot button topic in the first century. Listen, we feel like we have come so far and the ways things play out change over time, but our hearts remain the same. The answer to our heart's questions remain the same. And Jesus is the only one that brings clarity to these things. But, but he's saying, hey, I understand what you're trying to do. I understand the trap here. I understand the debate that everybody is having. And so he asks them, what did Moses command you? He knows that's where the argument is coming. 
It's coming out of Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. And this is the argument of the day, and it had gone in two different directions, as we'll see in just a second, and two different schools of thought. And they believe no matter how Jesus answers religiously, he's going to be trapped. And then no matter how he answers the question culturally, he's going to be trapped. But Jesus says, what did Moses command you? Here's what Moses commanded in Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. It says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency. And that's the word there that causes this major debate. If he finds this indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and he puts it in her hand and he sends her out of his house and she departs from his house and if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house or if the latter man dies who took her in as his wife then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife. After she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God had given you of for an inheritance. Now, that can be a little bit confusing as we read it. There's a couple of big things we need to notice. The word indecency, what does that mean? Is it a biblical word that tracks through the, the meta-narrative of Scripture? Or is it to be interpreted culturally so that it shifts and change and we can define it? That's, that's one of the questions here that the Pharisees are asking. And, and then we also need to see that what they're saying here is, even in verse 4, if she marries another man and then that man dies, the former husband cannot retake her as though she is property. That's a big thing that we need to recognize because it's really hard to interpret what's happening here in Deuteronomy. It can sound extremely harsh and it's just kind of like, whoa, this is, this is the reason that the Bible is antiquated and this is the reason that we need to move on and it's oppressive to women and, and all of these different kinds of things. But when we really dig into what is happening here and what Jesus has to say in the following verses, then we can see that, that is, there could not be further from the truth. What's actually happening here is that this was a society from Moses to the first century that is completely male-dominated. Women have no say, they can't vote, they have no rights. All of the wealth from a family is passed down through the man. It is male-dominated and women have absolutely no rights. This was happening in the time of Moses. This was happening in the first century. And what men were doing in the time of Moses and in the first century, where they were simply getting married as a possession, you're here to make me happy and fulfill me, to satisfy me, and when you don't, I will discard you. And it was as simple as that. And men were marrying women and then just discarding them for any given reason. I just don't love you anymore. I just don't want you anymore. You just don't satisfy me anymore. All of these foundational things that breed insecurity in relationships and keep us from ever having the relationships that we were created to have because we're on pins and needles, we're totally insecure, we're using one another to get something, but it was very one way in the first century. It was the man could use the wife, but the wife could not use the man. And, and Moses is identifying this, and through God telling him to do this, he writes something down, this concession for divorce. 
because men were just marrying women and doing whatever they wanted to with them. And so Moses, under the command of God, actually brings in Deuteronomy chapter 24 some protection to women. It was incredible before its time, incredibly before its time. The Bible still is today. Scripture is the only thing that takes men and women and makes them absolutely equal in value, revealing the image of God, making them different. And as they come together, revealing something more full of who God is, not only to one another, but to the world around them. It is why it is one of the most beautiful and archetypal relationships on planet earth when we understand it. It is, it is amazing. It is beautiful. It is uplifting. It gives glory to God. It reveals the gospel truth of Jesus and his people and the church and the oneness that we have with him and the, the inability for us to walk away from him who has saved us by his grace through his work. It's unbelievably beautiful when we get it right, even through difficulty and sin and brokenness and hardship. But the men of this time were just doing whatever they wanted to with it. And so Moses comes along and says, you can't do that. See, the Bible protects women. When we actually begin to dig into it, there's this misconception that it's actually something that's oppressive to women. But only scripture in this time period was setting up things under God like the kinsman redeemer. That if a woman's husband passed away, then the closest relative to him would marry her so that she would be provided for in a culture that would dismiss her. Uh, only in this setting is, is God using women in his redemptive story from beginning to end in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Only is God using women in a time when they couldn't vote and, and their opinions didn't matter and they could be dismissed any other place in the world is Jesus actually using them as leaders in the early church. Is, is God actually using women to be the first ones to go and see the empty tomb and be the first ones to spread the good news of the gospel to all of humanity? He's revealing that men and women are completely of equal value created in his image to reveal something beautiful that they alone can reveal. And when they come together, it creates this incredible portrait of the goodness and grace of God. This is what he is beginning to lay out. And see, God alone allows us to see this. And so God protects women here through what he does with Moses. Because a man can no longer just kick a woman out. He actually makes it a legal process. You can't just wake up one day and decide that you don't want to be married anymore and send her away. But now I'm bringing a legal process into it. You have to give her a certificate of divorce so that she has negotiating power. And she can't be seen as just a, a piece of something of possession. And if she goes and marries somebody else and then that man dies, you can't just possess her back again. You've lost your rights to her. She has a certificate from you that she is not your possession. And, and so this was to protect them. This was to give them negotiating power in a world where that did not exist. But at the time of Jesus, as I said, there were these two different dominant opinions, two different schools of thought. One school of thought was under Rabbi Shammai, and Shammai was kind of the more conservative view. He took what scripture said through the grand narrative, and he said, you should get married and remain married for the glory of God unless there is adultery. That was the one train of thought. It was the conservative view of thought. And lo and behold, if there's a conservative view of thought, how many of you know there's a liberal view of thought? Uh, so there was another school. 
This was the school of Hillel. And Hillel said, a man can divorce his wife for whatever he desires. In fact, early in the first century, it was believed that if your wife cooks a meal and you don't like it, you can just divorce her. For any given reason, you can just dismiss a wife. And this was the dominant cultural opinion. If you remember, we said it's important that Jesus was going uh, where he was going in this time when the Pharisees were asking him this question. And the reason for that is he's gone out of Galilee and he's gone into the area where Herod Antipas is the Tetrarch. Herod Antipas is somebody that was put under Roman rule to rule over the Israelite people in this area. He was not a God-fearing follower of Christ. He wasn't looking for the Messiah. And if you remember in chapter 6, he actually gets his brother Philip's wife to divorce him and marry him. And so he's, he's done this where he's called her out to divorce his brother and then to marry him. And John the Baptist comes along and, and while he's preaching the gospel to Herod and to all of those in his court, he actually tells Herod, this is not something that you should have done. You should repent. She should go back to be with Philip. Well, Herodias, um, Herod's wife, the one that he married, she did not like that at all. And it ends up getting John beheaded. So now you can begin to see kind of the, the legal aspect or the governmental thought of the time in the first century and why the Pharisees are coming. They're going, hey, religiously, we gotcha. And then if you say that, that you disagree with this, then we'll just run over to Herod and hopefully he'll do the same thing that you, he did to John to you. And so they think that they're trapping Jesus with this huge trap because the, the public opinion is that a man can do anything he wants with his wife. The, the tetrarch of the area has already done whatever he wants to do with another person's wife. And then you have this biblical view that was going on during the time of Moses that now we have reinterpreted into our culture religiously and said this word indecent means anything we want it to mean. So Jesus, what do you think? Because if you go conservative, we'll just switch over to liberal real quick and we gotcha. If you go liberal, we'll go conservative real quick and we gotcha. Jesus sees this and he's pulling them in with this. And so the second part of what he says to them, if you look in this text, Jesus really doesn't care about appeasing religious leaders or political thought. He's about bringing his kingdom. He's not about religious tradition. Like he is revealing the gospel truth, the foundational truth for all of life, revealing the kingdom that we were created to live in. And it is completely different than the kingdoms we have set up. It is absolutely political, but he is king and it is his kingdom. It's not about what we set up here on earth. All that we have on earth will pass away. We should do the best that we can with it. We should use the freedoms and steward them well that we can to glorify and honor God individually and as a people, but all will pass away and his kingdom will remain. So he's not interested in those things. He's gonna reveal his kingdom. And so he says, what did Moses command you? And then they answer him. They walk right into it. And then he says, Moses did this because of your hardness of heart. 
He says, Moses did this because you were sinning against God. You were hardening your heart. You were not loving the way that you were supposed to love. You were not revealing the King Jesus as you were supposed to be revealing him. You were using other people. You were abusing other people. You were oppressing women. You were not doing what you were supposed to be doing under the law of God. And so Moses says what he said to protect the ones you're abusing. Man, there's some powerful language that Jesus is revealing here. And he says, this was not Moses' desire. This was not his recommendation. This was not God's command from the very beginning. But this is because your hearts would not listen to God. This is because you were not living in marriage the way that you were designed to live in marriage. And so Jesus, I love this. He doesn't answer the question at all, at least not the way that they want him to. He gives us another solution all together. And this is the solution we are looking for. This is what we long for. This is what we have to ask when we're asking the question about identity and and purpose and relationships and, and everything else. Here's what Jesus does. When we think about ethics, and for hundreds of years, this is the way that we've foundationally thought about ethics, or what is right and what is wrong. Um, Going back to Aristotle and going to, theologically, Aquinas, um, we have what's called anthropological teleology. Uh, And that's just a big word to say that everything has a direction and a purpose. And Aquinas would say, theologically, everything that acts and moves uh, is moving with direction towards a purpose. Whether they know it or not, um, whether they understand that purpose and they're pursuing it, or they're just grasping in thin air hoping they find something, everything that moves has a direction and has a purpose. And if we do not understand, he would say, that purpose, building on Aristotle's thoughts, if we don't understand the purpose of something, then we cannot understand the meaning and we will be aimless in our direction. And so an example that we could use is like a car. We know what a car is for. It's for transportation. Now, we could use it for all sorts of silly things if we didn't know it was for transportation. But we know what a car is for, we know what it's designed to do, and therefore we use it only for that purpose. Uh, A watch tells time, and so we use it to understand what time it actually is. It's not good for anything else. It it ticks every second to help us understand what time of day it actually is. And so we use it for that purpose, and in understanding its purpose, we know its meaning, we know its, its reason, we know its direction. And we know how to use it, and it has value. This is what's pointed out by Aquinas and Aristotle, that that everything has direction and everything has purpose. And and so here's what Jesus is doing. He's saying, if you want to ask questions about identity and and gender and relationships and marriage and, and any question that you might have culturally from now to kingdom come, any question you might have individually and you want to know what is right and what is wrong, what is freeing and what is enslaving, what you need to get at at the very foundation is the understanding of its purpose. You cannot understand humanity unless you know why it exists. You can't understand marriage unless you know the purpose of marriage, the direction that it is supposed to go in for freedom. And so this is what Jesus is is pointing out. He gives us the purpose and direction. He lays down for us the truth. We cannot ask if any behavior is right or wrong without this reality. And here's what he does. He goes to the creational intent. 
He says, okay, if you want to ask questions about marriage and divorce and identity and reality and how you use your possessions and what you do in life and, and everything about your meaning and purpose and place and identity, here's what you need to know. You were created in the image of God. He says, male and female, you were created. And in being created in the image of God, this is where you have your value. This is where you have your innate worth. Men and women being created in the image of God, this is how you were designed to be male or to be female. And in so doing, you have value in being an image bearer of God. And he says, when the two come together in marriage, and this is how marriage is designed for one man and one woman to come together and the two become one. God created Adam and he saw that everything was good, but it was not good that man was alone because they were imaging God and God within himself has unity and community between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. He says, it's not good for man to image me alone, but he creates for him a helper and man and woman are created and the two are made one by God together to reveal something of the beauty of the gospel and how those who place their faith in Jesus become one with their savior and it cannot be separated for all eternity. You are saved in him, you are held in him, and you have all of him for all of eternity. And this is what the marriage represents. He says that a, a man leaves his father and mother and that this relationship that he goes into becomes the archetypal relationship. It is the most important relationship. Parents are important. Children are important. Other friendships are important. But that is not what God put in the garden. He put one man and one woman. And he said, when you come together, it is good. And it reveals the beauty of creation and the gospel and relationship with me. This is why marriage is so weighty. This is why it's so beautiful when we do it well, even when it's hard. And it's hard. There is reason after reason after reason that it is so difficult. And for much of it, you might not be happy in the moment. But what we see here is that marriage is not about you and it's not about me. It's about God's glory. And us in him growing in holiness and Christ-likeness. It's about what we reveal because of who we are in him. And this is what allows us to become one. And this is what allows marriage to flourish. And this is what allows it to be beautiful. And so he says, the two become one flesh. Therefore, what God has put together, let no man separate. That's the gospel that it reveals. And so Jesus says in the last half of the passage that we just read, how do you make the decision about marriage? Well, you don't start with what you want. You don't start with the difficulties that might be there. You don't start with the emotions that you feel from moment to moment. You start with God's design. This goes back to the freedom of walking in him and the understanding that when we live for his glory, we have the greatest joy. When we walk away from living for his glory, we walk away from life. And death is what occurs. And so Jesus says, there's a truth that, that we must appeal to. There's a foundational truth for purpose and joy. 
And marriage by design reveals the gospel truth. And, and, and by design, Adam and Eve came together and they were naked and unashamed. Can, can you imagine that? Not just physically, but just emotionally, just being able to be known fully and experiencing love, sacrificial at the deepest level. Th this is what marriage was designed to be. And only in sin do we become naked and ashamed. Do we begin to cover ourselves up? Do we begin to hide? Do we begin to experience disingenuine love and relationships for our happiness and not for our holiness? When God's order is forsaken, it brings ruin and bondage. We were made for his glory and his glory alone. And, and in doing and living the way that he has created us, we experience something incredible. And it's about making a covenant commitment to one another. This is what they have in the garden. This is what Jesus has with us. It's a commitment to love based on who we are, not on what they do. This is why traditional marriage vows, if you look at them, and now I know everybody likes to make up their own vows, and that's why I have to see them if I'm going to ever marry you, um, just to make sure we don't start off on the wrong foot. Um, but traditional marriage vows are about a covenant, and you will not hear anything in them that's about today, this is how I feel. Marriage vows are all about how you will feel tomorrow because you are making a covenant commitment based on the love you have in Christ to be revealed in this relationship, to reveal the kingdom, to reveal his gospel, no matter what comes. I don't know how wealthy or poor we're gonna be. I don't know how healthy or unhealthy we're gonna be. But what I do know is Jesus loved me and died for me and he saved me and he's redeeming me and I can reveal that love in everything that I have and everything that I do. And I commit to you today for the rest of my life to reveal that love to you, not because of what you do, but because of what Christ has done for me. And then we can begin to experience an unconditional love, a sacrificial love, the beauty of the gospel put on display. This is why God says what he puts together, let no man separate. This is Jesus's answer to the religious leaders. And that is not what they expected him to say. The next thing we see is him closing up the text and he's with the disciples and the disciples are all confused. And, and Jesus is saying, if you divorce one and marry another, you're committing adultery. And the only excuse for or reason for, but, but not something that must happen for divorce is adultery. Paul would add in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, which we've gone through before, um, that abandonment is another reason that you need to, to wholeheartedly look at and, and we have to figure out in wisdom through God's word with help of one another what that actually means and what falls under that. And so there are different reasons in a marriage relationship that it would break the covenant relationship. And God says that divorce is not something that you just should do, but it is something that you might have to really wrestle with. And, and I know that when we come to that reality, there are things in many of our lives which we have had to face and struggle with. And so I wanna close with this this morning. And again, there's a thousand different things that we can say. I can't possibly hit every single situation that you are in, but here's what I want you to know. I love you. We are here for you. We are not condemning you. We are not shaming you. We are not judging you. I am laying forward the truth of God's word 
and we love you, and we want you to flourish in all of life in his truth for his glory. And so we are here for you, and if you are going through anything in your marriage now, if you have gone through a separation or divorce that you are struggling with, we want to be able to pray for you. We want to be able to walk in that with you. We want to be able to help you in wisdom and in God's word figure out how you could best glorify God in your life because marriage is two individual people. It should be, and this again is why God says to only marry somebody that is a follower of Jesus. One, because if somebody doesn't love Jesus more than they love you, they will never love you more than they love themselves. And two, because he wants you to be able to reveal his holiness and gospel together. And so when you see things and commands that God is making in scripture, like uh, don't be unevenly yoked and and, uh, men and women are to get together and that is what marriage is. And sex happens within a marriage relationship. When you see all of those things, we can go, ah, it feels so shackling. But what God is actually doing is wanting you to flourish. Wanting you to live in his design wanting you to experience freedom and reveal the gospel in the deepest relationship that you can. And and so to close out this morning, here's what I want to say to bring some hope, maybe a little bit of tension. But you might say to me, well, Brandon, I I have been divorced. Maybe you're in another relationship or, or you're remarried. And maybe you would say it wasn't really for the right reasons. I just wasn't happy. I just wanted to move on. I kind of had the pharisaical view of marriage. I just wanted to be fulfilled. And this person that I was using wasn't fulfilling me. And what I want you to know about that is that there is grace and there is mercy and there is forgiveness. I'm not going to stand here because of God's word and tell you that what you did is right but I will tell you that there is forgiveness and you can now move forward giving glory to God in every way with all of life in every relationship. If you are remarried, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 to remain as you are, to glorify him in this new relationship that you have, to reveal his gospel truth, to live in his intent and design, to flourish together. Reveal the beauty of the gospel. Allow others to see it. Some of you might say, well, Brandon, I'm in a situation right now where it's abusive or this person's terrible to me or they cheated on me and and I've tried everything to fix it and and I've tried to restore it and, and they just won't and it feels like they are abandoning our relationship. And these are things that you need to come forward with. These are things that we need to help you with. If it's abusive, we need to get you out of that situation. And we need to look at God's word and in wisdom and prayer and with much counsel, figure out what you need to do that is most glorifying to God in your life. And in some cases, that might mean that you need to divorce your spouse. There's, again, a hundred different ways that we could look at this, but here's what I want to say. Jesus says every divorce is the product of sin, but not every divorce is sinful. It's always sad. It always hurts. It always affects our children. It always affects you from now and into the future. It's never ideal, but it's not always wrong. We live in a sinful, broken world world. God is gracious 
and he will redeem you and he will restore you. He can redeem and restore the darkest even of relationships. And we need to go to him and seek to glorify and honor him in every relationship and in everything that we do. Jesus says, the foundational truth is that in your identity, you glorify me. In your relationships, you reveal the glory that I have saved you in.